Crosspoint, Peachtree City family, along with those of you who may be joining in with us this morning. As was suggested during last week's Sunday gathering, I'll begin this morning by saying thanks for bringing the church into this video stream. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who gets the privilege most weeks of opening up the scriptures as we come together, which this morning remains a bit of a digital reality as we as leaders continue to have clarifying conversations regarding how to think about the coming weeks and months that, that lie ahead. In the meantime, I trust that God's word will do what God's word does as it's both preached and sung into homes throughout our community and beyond. With that said, you can open up your Bible if you have one to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and then we're also gonna look alongside of those verses at chapter six, verse 17. You may even be able to look at both without even having to turn the page, depending on the Bible that you have in your possession. If you don't own a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible in your possession, as I've said for weeks now, uh, please go to our church website, go to the leadership page, uh, find someone on staff, shoot us an email, let us know that you don't own a Bible and would like one, and we will get one shipped to you as quickly as we possibly can so that you can have it for times like these and really every other day of the week that you would like to dive into the scriptures and learn more about who this God is and what he is up to in this world that we find ourselves in. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get after it this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning asking you to do a great work in our hearts. We, your children, would you fan into flame a deeper gratitude for your kindness in the wilderness, in this present age, as we await King Jesus's return. It's in his good name I pray, amen. So last week's sermon was part one of a two-part mini-series of sorts, a series focused on both present gratitude and future hope two elements of the Christian life that present us with a sort of tension in which we're to live as we journey to this celestial city that awaits the children of God. As I mentioned last week, it would be one of the great tragedies of all time to have lived through a global pandemic without some sort of newfound longing on the other side of it, a longing that absolutely nothing in this broken world can fill, a longing that can only be filled in the age to come. That as we wander together through the wilderness of this strange experience that we're all a part of, one of the dangers for us is that our Canaan would be too small. The promised land in our minds being things like the reopening of coffee shops and restaurants, the ending of a shelter-in-place order, the embracing of loved ones that we haven't been able to be around for quite some time, the relaunching of collegiate and professional sports, the eradication of the virus. As I mentioned last week, all good things, but none of them able to fulfill our deepest longings, which can and only will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. That Canaan is not whatever lies on the other side of this pandemic. Canaan is what, whatever lies on the other side of the king's return. That, that was the focus of last week's sermon, our future hope, that glorious happily ever after that awaits the children of God. Having said that, God never intended future hope to function as an enemy of present gratitude. The two are really good friends, in fact, that we're meant to feel a deep sense of longing for Canaan the great happily ever after to come when Jesus returns, a longing that absolutely nothing in this world can fill, 
and we're meant to feel the deepest gratitude for God's kindness in the wilderness, the good gifts that come from the Father's hand in this present age as we await the king's return. That's the focus of this week's sermon, as we continue to keep those two things in tension, future hope and present joyful gratitude, longing for the age to come and treasuring God by enjoying his gifts. I wanna, wanna start this morning with a couple of passages of scripture that, that seem to be in conflict with each other. Psalm chapter 73, verses 25 and 26, the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? There, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You're, you're my one desire, Lord. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, my portion forever. That language coexisting in the scriptures with words like these from the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Or 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, Paul says, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, here it is, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul tells Timothy not to reject the things of creation, but to prayerfully and biblically receive them with thanksgiving from God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So which is it? Desire God only or receive everything he richly provides with godly gratitude? The error of some is to embrace a, a prosperity gospel, you might say, a health and wealth gospel, which emphasizes the goodness of the things of earth at the expense of the high and heavenly. The error of others is to embrace a sort of asceticism, which emphasizes the high and heavenly at the expense of grateful and appropriate enjoyment of God's good and gracious gifts. I mean, what, why did God create a world filled with wonder? The joy of friendships the beauty of sunsets, the wonder of music, the glory of bacon. It's so that we who have been delivered from sin and death through Jesus Christ, that we might know God more, that we might love God more, that we might enjoy God more, and that in that, that he might be increasingly glorified in us. Psalm chapter 19, verse one says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans chapter one, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, God's attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That creation itself is God's revealing of himself so that everything that God has made, you could say, is a message declaring something of who God is, something of what God's like, something of how we're meant to interact with our maker. Matthew chapter six, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Matthew chapter 6, 28, consider the lilies of the field. Proverbs chapter six, verse six, go to the ant, O sluggard. We're surrounded by evidences of God everywhere we look. A mustard seed teaches us something about faith. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. A pearl 
teaches us something about the worth of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 13, verse 46. A tree with deep roots teaches us something about righteousness. Psalm chapter one, verse three. You wanna know something of what the glory of Jesus Christ is like? Revelation 1.16 says, stare directly into the unclouded noonday sun. There's meaning everywhere we look as we see something of God in and through all of creation. One of the most easily digestible analogies, pun absolutely intended, is found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 13 and 14 says this, my son, eat honey for it is good and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. The, the sweetness of honey, it declares to us something of what wisdom tastes like to the soul. It's an analogy that falls completely short if we haven't allowed honey to sit on our taste buds very long. It's an analogy that falls short if we haven't fully tasted of and enjoyed honey's sweetness. That, that we're meant to deeply enjoy the pleasure of honey on our taste buds as a gift from God that we might more deeply know something of what wisdom is to the human soul. To be sure, I'm not arguing for idolatry this morning, for the elevating of created things to the throne of our hearts. Anyone who's been around our church for more than a minute would know that. That God is supremely valuable above all things worthy of unrivaled glory and honor and praise. What I'm arguing is that as we believe that and embrace that, that we're free to enjoy him in and through his good gifts. Let, let me say it this way. My wife makes some stellar homemade biscuits and she has really perfected that craft during this pandemic. It's been an absolutely uh, game-changing experience over the last several weeks. Loving those biscuits and the one who made them, it doesn't have to be a compete. As if love for the biscuits themselves necessarily means a lack of love for my wife. That it's possible to enjoy those biscuits in such a way that my wife is honored and appreciated all the more. And in fact, my enjoyment of my wife's cooking, it actually increases my deep love for her as a person. If, if asked where my supreme love and allegiance lies in the wife versus biscuit conversation, the answer, make no mistake about it, will always be my wife, but my enjoyment of and gratitude for her cooking, it's a declarative expression of that very love that I have for her. With our affection set supremely on the triune God, we enjoy that triune God in, in gratefully sinking our teeth into life's biscuits, you might say. That, that the appropriate response to the danger of idolatry is not an all-out rejection of God's good gifts. Rather, it's grateful enjoyment of God's good gifts as just that, gifts, not God's. Coming back to Romans chapter one, again, verse 20, and the verses that follow, Paul says, for his invisible attributes, God's, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse sinners, Paul's talking about here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Passage speaks to the idolatrous heart that wants to make the, the, the most awful trade that man can possibly make, exchanging the worship of the creator for created things. What does God say that sinners should have done rather than elevate created things into objects of worship? He says they should have honored God alone as God and they should have expressed gratitude for a created world that reveals something of his divine nature. In the words of one commentator, the answer to the problem of idolatry is not to hold creation like a hot potato, to stiff arm created pleasures. In fact, Paul calls that kind of asceticism demonic, believe it or not. I mean, back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, Beginning in verse one, Paul says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now here's the demonic teaching. Paul says, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Here's that verse again. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's the same kind of lie that the serpent brought to Eve in the garden. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in this garden? Well, no, he didn't say that at all. He said, enjoy the pleasures of every single tree but one. That one tree, a reminder that only God is God dealing with the idolatry problem. The other trees, an opportunity to enjoy him all the more with grateful hearts. So that I would say this, I would say we should be gravely concerned with the dangers of idolatry. Make no mistake about it. Knowing that our hearts are perpetual idol factories, as Calvin once said. But we should also be concerned with the inability to gladly and gratefully enjoy created things to the honor and praise of God's glorious grace. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Miracles, to shrink back from all that can be called nature into negative spirituality is as if we ran away from horses instead of learning to ride. That there is in our present pilgrim condition plenty of room, more room than most of us like for abstinence and renunciation and mortifying our natural desires. But behind all asceticism, the thought should be, who will trust us with the true wealth if we cannot be trusted even with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I cannot control even an earthly body? These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. He goes on to say, we must learn to manage. Not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident and rejoicing those greater mounts, those winged, shining and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pawing and snorting in the king's stables. Not that the gallop will be of any value, he says, unless it were a gallop with the king. But how else, since he has retained his own charger, should we accompany him? 
that as God's redeemed, we, we get the privilege of declaring God alone to be God, all the while experiencing something of his glory and grace in the good gifts he bestows upon us. In other words, or another way we could say it, God's design is such that we who are in Christ, we can supremely and fully enjoy the sun without rejecting its beams. G.K. Chesterton once said, I love this, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Which is perhaps why Chesterton's writings are so incredibly influential. A pen that would have profound influence on C.S. Lewis himself becoming a Christian. That's beside the point. The, the point is this. It, you and I are surrounded by far more opportunities than we know to praise and enjoy God with grateful hearts. He's, he's worthy of worship in the reading of the scriptures, the corporate gathering of the church, times of prayer, or any other uh, spiritual discipline that you might add to the list. And he's also worthy of worship in the reading of a beautifully written novel, the laughter of a child, the basking in the warmth of the noonday sun, so that the goal of Christianity would be that he never leaves our sight, that we're aware of his presence in all that we do, both in the prayer before the meal, you might say, and in the enjoyment of the meal itself. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Knowing that, James 1, 17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. I, I realize the risk that I'm taking this morning. And to be honest, it's a risk that I'm very much willing to take because I believe that the truly committed Christian hedonist, that he or she finds a way to treasure God by enjoying his gifts without those gifts being fashioned into golden calves. Biblically, as Paul says, prayerfully, gratefully, allowing those things to, to enlarge our hearts, to enlarge our minds, to enlarge our souls, that we might have greater capacity to love God, greater capacity to know God, greater capacity to enjoy God, and that we might have greater capacity to love our neighbor. I'm grateful for, for the picture of the melting of the bitter cold of evil in the spring of Narnia. I'm grateful for having sent something of the Father's love for me in the warmth of a really good snuggle with my kids. I'm, I'm grateful that I can know something more of the glory of Jesus Christ in the briefest of stairs into the noonday sun. I'm grateful that I can Strengthen the fight against lady folly in the enjoyment of a piece of toast that doesn't go light on the honey. To be sure, I'm not advocating any more than I'm advocating for idolatry this morning that we would cast aside the principle of self-denial or that of gospel form sacrificial generosity. What I'm advocating for is that we not cast aside Paul's words to Tim Timothy or James 1.17 
or 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I'm advocating that we, we give generously and sacrificially, having ourselves gratefully received from the generous hand of the Father of lights, to use James's language, so that God-glorifying, grateful, joyful receiving, it, it doesn't undermine generosity, it actually fuels it. Something that we Christians very much understand, right? As recipients of the gift of God's lavish grace in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, that's the gift that you need more than anything in this world. The gift of reconciliation. One of the most famous verses, one of the most often quoted verses in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave he gave his son, Jesus, the one who lived your life, the perfect life of sinless obedience that none of us could live, the one who died your death, the sinner's death that all of us deserve to die, the one that rose from the grave that we might have life and have it abundantly, John chapter 10, verse 10. So that if you're not a Christian, I implore you to receive the greatest gift, the gift of reconcilement to the living God secured by the blood of Jesus Christ the gift that, that opens our eyes to see all other gifts rightly, that we might gratefully and joyfully receive them in a way that honors and glorifies our Father in heaven as his children. I invite you this morning and in the days to come and in the weeks to come and in the months to come and in the years to come to look around, to see the, the many opportunities before you to, to use Chesterton's language to say grace to the glory of the God of grace. The opportunities are endless because the Father's love and kindness to us is lavish. And so I, I invite you this morning to go get lost in the land of Narnia, gratefully and joyfully, that you might more deeply treasure the God who stands triumphant over the bitter cold of evil. Go snuggle your kids gratefully and joyfully that you might more deeply treasure the Father's love. Go stare into the noonday sun gratefully and joyfully for just a second or two, obviously, that you might more deeply treasure Jesus Christ radiant in glory. Go make yourself a piece of honey toast this afternoon, gratefully and joyfully without skimping on the honey that you might more deeply treasure the God whose freely given wisdom is sweet to the soul. So easy for us to, to lose sight of the, the many ways that God has been gracious and kind to us, especially in the midst of this abnormal, discomforting season of life, this weird wilderness experience. May it not be so. May, may God open wide our eyes to see the evidences of his kindness all around us that we might enjoy him in and through his good gifts to the praise of his glorious grace, all the while, going back to last week, longing for the return of our greatest gift, King Jesus, and the ushering in of his consummated kingdom. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship in a couple of ways. One, through our song, collectively, though we're scattered, being brought together, in homes throughout our community, in this very space, I invite you to soak under these lyrics, to sing them for yourself, to make this a moment, to enjoy God through song, one of his many gifts that he's given us to appreciate and gratefully enjoy. 
As I've mentioned over the past several weeks, we're not gonna partake of the Lord's Supper right now, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't pause for a moment as we would before we were to come in, in this very building and receive the bread and the cup to pause just to, to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us, to celebrate the greatest gift that we've been given by whom we can now see all other gifts rightly.